It is said that one time the Buddha was walking through the forest with some of his students. And he reached down to the forest floor and he picked up a handful of leaves and he said, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all of the forest? And having practiced for a long time, those students answered correctly and said, there's more leaves in the forest. And the Buddha said, just so is my knowledge. What I know is like the leaves in the forest. What I have taught you is like the leaves in my hand. But that's all you need to know to free your mind. The Buddha taught only what was necessary to free our minds from clinging, fear, grasping, hatred, delusion. And there are many ways of summarizing the Buddha's teaching. But in all of the Buddha's teaching, he talks about four realms of knowledge, four kinds of experience that we or any being can have. And he called them the paramata dhammas, ultimate realities, or more appropriately, that which can be directly experienced. And he identified these as first, consciousness, or the mind, the knowing faculty. Second, the attributes of the mind, such as the hindrances, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, a lot of the different factors of mind that we have talked about and have identified here. Thirdly, he talked about materiality, the nature of the body and the physical world in which we live. And fourthly, he talked about the unconditioned, or Nibbana. And here we hear a lot of talk about the mind and the mental factors, and incidentally, a little bit about the body, and not much about Nibbana. But if we hear the Buddhist teaching, and we understand, and we have some level of recognition of what it was the Buddha was talking about, and pointing us towards, then we can practice with some confidence knowing that 2,500 years of millions of meditators have practiced this same practice with the same understanding that we have and have discovered for themselves the wisdom of what the Buddha taught from their own experience. 
Tonight I want to talk a little bit more about the third element or the third observable reality of the body, of materiality. I think in the West, the preeminent view of the material world is scientific materialism, where we have studied the material world outside of ourself and have learned a tremendous amount of and have discovered a tremendous amount of knowledge and have used that knowledge in very sophisticated ways to manipulate the material world for our benefit. And all of us have benefited tremendously from that use and uh, that knowledge of the material world. But I think we have to ask ourselves a very serious question and consider whether we are more free or more in bondage to the material world by our accumulation of materiality and our relationship to it. Has it freed us from clinging, from fear, from envy, from unhappiness? Maybe the most easily identifiable experience of the material world is our own body. And universally, maybe traditionally, concern for our body has focused on its appearance, how it looks, how it smells, how it feels, how it sounds. And in our culture, a premium is put on youthfulness, energy, smoothness of skin, thinness of body, certain color hair, certain color skin. And mass communication has done its part to create images of perfect body, whether it's through actors, actresses, models. And this barrage of media energy that we have consumed has had a profound conditioning effect on our life. And it would be worth our effort and our time to understand just what this conditioning has done to us and just how far away we have actually gotten from the direct experience of our bodies. Not only actors and actresses and the models and uh, image of a perfect body, we now have the new age 
healthy body that we can uh, be informed about and strive to achieve through knowledge on health, the benefit of exercise, the, the necessity of maintaining a healthy uh, heart and circulatory system or nervous system or uh, all the systems in the body. And I think maybe unconsciously we have invested a tremendous amount of energy and sense of self-worth in achieving a scientific body. Where if we somehow can just get the right amount of vegetables, exercise, and cardiovascular, whatever we need, in the right balance, at the right age and time, with the right people and the right clothes on. <laughs> somehow, somehow we're going to achieve this perfect body and live happily ever after. No problem. That idea, that very idea, sneaks in to our consciousness or our unconsciousness through the mass media. If we haven't been noting that accumulation, <laughs> we're going to suffer as we grow older. Of course, this knowledge is helpful. It's beneficial. It's useful. A lot of us are living uh, more physically fulfilling lives for having it and for acting on it. But I think we need to acknowledge the limitations of this type of knowledge. A lot of the claims of different dietitians or health um, uh, instructors of one sort or another offer very contradictory and at times confusing claims. And I think we have to acknowledge that in spite of how diligently we can pursue any regimen of activity or uh, physical development, it has limited ability to free us from suffering. Because in fact, our strong beliefs about the nature of the body and its perfectibility our attachment to those beliefs leads to suffering and unhappiness. Bob Dylan put it rather uh, interestingly when he said, may you stay forever young. That may be a losing battle. The reason that the claims and uh, possible benefits of some of these diets and, and exercise programs can be so contradictory is that uh, 
they have different goals in mind. And few, if any of them, have liberation of mind as a goal. When I first came to uh, the center here, I had been on a very um, strange diet for a couple of years, eating mostly raw and no meat or salt or sweetener or anything that didn't grow. And uh, when I first came here, of course, they have a lot of dairy food, and I hadn't been eating dairy for some time, so I just ate what was offered here. And, of course, my body went into extreme revolt and reaction. And I went to one of the teachers in my first retreat here, and I was complaining about, oh, the food here, and my body is just rant, 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 rant. And... Um, very wise teacher. He looked at me and said, the damage you do to your body and mind by sticking to a diet like that is far worse than if you just went to McDonald's and ate a hamburger. And there's some wisdom in that. Here, as yogis, what we're doing is learning to observe our mind and our body for self-knowledge. And already in these six weeks, what have we learned about the body? First, that we're pretty unaware of it much of the time. Pretty out of touch, pretty not home, pretty ignorant, really, of what the body's actually doing. We may have noticed our fluctuating self-image. How do I look today? Yeah, pretty good. How do I look now? Not so good. How do I look now? I could care less. <laughs> I hope you don't either. We may have noticed that we are extremely fascinated and curious about other people's bodies liking to compare ourselves with others. And no doubt we've all felt shame and pride. And in our sense of ourself as reflected in our body, in our posture, in the way we dress. We may have noticed how quickly the body changes from hot to cold, from tired to energetic. We have been, may have noticed the changeability of our comfort in the body. Sometimes very comfortable and at ease, sometimes very uncomfortable and ill at ease, discovering superficial discomfort and deep tension and pain. We may have become sick we may have noticed, finally, that we really don't have much control over our body. And yet, we say, this is my body. But is it really? This identification that we have with our body 
really leads us to bondage, into bondage with our self-image, into the burden of comparing ourselves with others, into an oppressive self-judgment at times, where we're attached to our appearance, confused by our unexplained discomfort, and generally often find that we're pretty unhappy. Is there another way to relate to our body that can lead to happiness? That we can find some understanding or some way of relating to the body that doesn't uh, wax and wane with how we appear? The Buddha, in his greater discourse on mindfulness, said, For the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the realization of a liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. And with that statement, with that instruction, he identified the body as one of the four foundations for mindfulness, emphasizing that a right understanding through clear comprehension of the nature of the body would free us from personal suffering. That's not a claim you're going to read in the health magazines. So what is this body that we have lived with every day of our life? What is this material thing that we have such a relationship with? The word in the Pali language, in the Buddhist language, rupa, is usually translated as materiality. And it has the condition, or its definition is that which has the nature of change. That which is able to be impacted by external conditions. For example, the body. In the Buddha's approach to and search for the knowledge that would lead to the end of unhappiness, he used a phenomenological approach where he only acknowledged as true what he could directly experience, so that he wasn't developing his understanding based on thought, based on logic or rationalization. And so when he began to ask questions about the nature of the body, he experienced it and noted, noticed what it was that he experienced. And we here on retreat are instructed to do the same. To actually put aside our thoughts and our ideas about the body 
and to focus our attention on the actual experience of the body. And the primary objects are given to pay attention to the breath in sitting, pay attention to the movement of the legs in walking. And initially in practice, when the mindfulness and the concentration are rather weak, sometimes our knowledge of anatomy is greater than our actually actual experience. And we can often have visualizations, imaginations, or ideas about what's going on in the body as we breathe. And we may actually uh, see or know or think we know the form and the shape of what's going on either here or here as we observe the breath. Or we may have an idea of what's going on in the leg, the muscles, the bones, the joints, the tendons, etc. as we're walking. Or we may have an idea of the way it moves, the way that these muscles move in these bones, over these bones, or the way that these organs relate to one another within the uh, torso. And often, that's where we begin to, to have some idea of what's going on in the body. But these images, or these visualizations of what's going on in the body, are mere manipulation of knowledge. Uh, this is not insight. It's useful to understand anatomy. But we should also understand that it's not insight knowledge. Not knowledge arrived at from our own personal experience. As we continue practice, we may, in time, begin to actually feel the body, begin to actually see, or begin to actually observe the nature of the breath, and feel the innate qualities of movement in the body as we walk. It's this ability to actually feel the body to know its essential nature, which is vital to insight. Of course, it takes some diligent focus, some diligent connecting of your attention and sustaining your attention, and determination to actually be with the direct experience rather than just think about what's happening. And if we do, if we persist in, in trying to be with that level of experience, then we begin to see, we begin to know, we begin to observe pressure and tightness and tingling and heaviness and vibrating, pulsating, heat, cold, chills, shivers, shakes, itching, pulsing. And there's a further list. The Buddha, too, discovered these very things. And the way he taught what he had observed was that there were four, fundamentally, that there were four elements that were 
playing out in the body. And these are all elements in the body that we can know through direct experience. He metaphorically represented them as earth, air, fire, and water. The earth element, as has been mentioned recently, is that quality of our experience along the continuum of hardness or softness. Now, please understand that this is just the abstract quality of hardness. There is no thing in there that is hard. There is no material element that is hard that we are experiencing. This is just abstract hardness. And we can feel it as hard or soft when you fluff up your zafu. We can sometimes feel it as gentleness of our clothes, maybe brushing against our limbs, tenderness, sometimes maybe even even a floating sensation, a lightness. Sometimes also we experience this earth element as itching or prickling or um, something like a pin sticking in you. This is an experience of hardness. The second element, the air element, is that quality of movement, motion, or vibration that we experience in the body. And we experience it, for example, in the, in the rising and falling of the abdomen as stretching, as pressure, extension, or distension of the abdomen. And the contraction and the pulling in as we as the, the, we breathe out and the abdomen falls. You can get a sense of what the air element does in the body by noticing what happens to a football or a basketball when you pump it up full of air. What happens? It swells, it gets hard and pressurized. So when you breathe in and you put air into the body, what happens? Swells, gets hard, gets pressurized. It's what holds the body up. It supports the body, makes the body able to sit upright, move limbs, because the body is supported. It also is responsible for the sense of stiffness, tension, tightness that we experience in the body. In any frequency of pulsation or vibration that we feel is also the air element moving in the body. So there's earth element, hardness, softness. The air element, movement, vibration, motion. The third element is the fire element, experienced as temperature, whether it's hot or cold. This is an element of fire. The fourth element, the water element, is a quality of cohesion or fluidity. But this element of water, cohesion or fluidity, is too subtle 
to be noticed on its own. Instead, we would notice it as either heat or coolness, hardness, softness, or some sort of motion. We wouldn't directly experience cohesion or fluidity. These four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, abstract hardness, abstract temperature, abstract movement, abstract cohesion, are rapidly fluxing in the body. They create the appearance of solidity, which is now being discovered by physicists. In the turning point, Fritjof Capra writes, subatomic particles are not made of any material substance. They have a certain mass, but this mass is a form of energy. Energy, however, is always associated with processes, with activity. It is a measure of activity. Subatomic particles, then, are bundles of energy or patterns of activity. The energy patterns of the subatomic world form stable atomic and molecular structures which build up matter and give it its macroscopic solid appearance, thus making us believe that it is made of some material substance. At the everyday macroscopic level, the notion of a substance is quite useful, but at the atomic level, it no longer makes sense. Atoms consist of particles, and these particles are not made of any material stuff. When we observe them, we never see any substance. What we observe are dynamic patterns continually changing into one another, a continuous dance of energy. When we begin practice, when the mindfulness is not so strong, our body feels very solid, very hard, tight, tense. But I think all of us have had a sense or a direct and maybe a prolonged experience of noticing at times that the body is not so solid as we believe. And when we really get close and look carefully at the nature of the physical experience, we see, in fact, that the body is a fluxing mass of energy, not stable for two instants. Why bother to experience that? What good is that going to do? Frankly, it's the only way to release identification of this body as myself. When we have pain in the knee and we identify that knee as mine and that pain as mine, we know the scenario 
We know the stream of thought that follows. Oh, my knee. Uh-oh. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get through this one. I hope it doesn't get any worse. I think I might be doing some damage to my knee. I'll probably never walk again. Maybe I better move now. Gee, I don't know who's it just got. Is this happiness? <laughs> our aversion to discomfort overpowers our wisdom. In time, wisdom and mindfulness become stronger, and it can overpower our identification with the body. As an example, after I'd been in Burma for a couple of years, at one point I was still doing intensive practice like this, insight practice, and for a few days in a row I had been reporting a lot of heat, a lot of pressure, a lot of hardness in the head. And I was going in and I was reporting, geez, I got a lot of heat and burning sensations and, you know, went into all the details of where it was flickering and etc., etc. And after about the third day, Sayadaw said to me, he says, uh, did you take your temperature? Maybe you're sick. <laughs> Mindfulness can become so powerful that the identification of the body stops. And the clarity of knowing the body as just sensations arising and passing, impersonal material elements, that knowledge and wisdom can overcome our identification. In that experience of heat and hardness and whatnot in the head, nobody was suffering. It wasn't pleasant, but there wasn't that solidification around that sense of, oh, poor me, I'm sick. I wonder what it is, when I'll get better, if I'll get better. Should I trust the medicine in Burma? Hmm. That whole scenario didn't get started. So there's these four elements, the earth element, air element, fire element, water element. There are other material experiences that we all know. There's the eye sensitivity, invisible objects. There's ear sensitivity, audible objects or sounds. Tongue sensitivity, taste, nose sensitivity, odors. There's the physical location of the mind and thoughts. These two are considered material elements. It's helpful to understand um, some of the attributes of material experience. First, materiality, the material world in and of itself is not wholesome or unwholesome according to purity of mind. It is the mind which is rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion or wisdom, generosity, and love, not the body. Materiality itself 
has no defilements. It doesn't grasp anything. It doesn't fear anything. It's the mind that grasps, that fears, that clings. Even after the Buddha's enlightenment, he still had a body. He still experienced pain, itching, heat, cold, discomfort. So we don't need to try to eliminate our experience of the sensory world. I think sometimes we fall into an unacknowledged belief that somehow we've got to stop all experience for freedom, for liberation, for whatever it is we think we're looking for. It's our relationship to our world It's our relationship to our sensory experience that determines bondage or freedom. The Buddha did suggest going to isolated places, going into uh, quiet, solitary, solitude uh, forests or cabins or retreat centers like this so that we could be a little bit free of distraction and begin to see the nature of our relationship to the body and to the sensory world. But at no time did he say we had to somehow get rid of it. So we have this body. We have these experiences of the the elements. Where does it come from? Why am I experiencing this pain? Why am I experiencing this uh, pleasantness in the body? We often ask that question of ourselves, of our teachers. Why am I experiencing this pain, this vibration, this movement? The Buddha did not attempt to explain the ultimate origin of matter, of materiality. And you might ask yourself, does it really matter to your happiness today? What happened at the Big Bang? If we know, does it really matter? Does it somehow free us from our attachments, our fear, our clinging? What the Buddha did do was he explained the conditional nature of our experience of the body. And he found that there were four causes as conditions for our experience of whatever we experience in the body. And the first of these is karma, the materiality of the body that arises with the rebirth consciousness present in the, the potential being present in the fetus as it grows, that we experience as a human body. The law of karma states that unwholesome, unskillful, or obstructed mental actions in the past result in unpleasant 
physical, mental experiences in the future. Wholesome, skillful, uh, aware actions in the past result in pleasant experiences in the future. And the Buddha also said that our accumulated karma may have a more powerful effect than the hereditary heredity of our parents' genes. Our karma may be more powerful than our physical um, gift from our parents. And so sometimes we have to acknowledge that our experience of our body sometimes is due to karma. What we're born with, the limitations of the body due to karma. The second causal condition for different experience of body, of materiality, is the mind, consciousness. Material experience arises with each consciousness. We can see it quite clearly, for example, when we're angry. When you get angry, what's the experience of the body? Tight, hot, clenched, contracted. Or when you experience fear, fear in the mind. What's the experience in the body? Maybe numb, maybe cold maybe constricted, maybe trembling. Physical experience. When we experience love, a condition of the mind, what do we feel in the body? Soft, light, pleasant, tingling. In practice, in meditation practice, sometimes when the concentration gets developed, great joy, in the form of piti, piti being the Pali word for joy or delight, arises. And at times, quite often, and many of you here also experience spontaneous body movements, rocking, shaking, uh, swaying, swooping and swooning, eyelids flickering, fluttering open and shut, spine feeling like it's being uh, lifted from above, powerful energy flowing through the body, swooping and swooning. These are physical effects due to the power of mind, conditioned by our consciousness. Experiences like these, experiences of this piti or joy arising in the body, need to be noted as and when they arise particularly noticing a pleasant quality to them if there is one. Because such experiences can be quite uh, enjoyable. And if we don't note the pleasantness of them, we'll be attached. And subtly, we will uh, encourage such experiences to continue. That's called being stuck. When the mind gets even more concentrated, and for those of you who are doing uh, metta practice to attain deep absorptions or jhana, 
it's said that when one attains jhana, the body is fixed in that posture for as long as one is in the jhana. Whatever that posture is, the body will not move for as long as the jhana lasts. Whether it's a minute, or a day, or three days, or four days, as it's reported that Deepama experienced. Unmoving body. Due to the power of mind, a physical experience of the body, due to or conditioned by the quality of consciousness. So there's karma, there's consciousness, there's also the environment or our climatic conditions that affects the body. If it's cold, we turn blue, we feel cold and we shiver. If it's hot, we get red, get sunburned and sweat. Very obvious that the climatic uh, environmental conditions also affect the body. And the fourth source of conditioned experience in the body is nutriment of food. And it's that change in the body that we experience as we grow or as we, uh, how we feel after eating, whether it's full or happy or light or comfortable or uncomfortable, obviously due to the nutritive element in food. And we can acknowledge these sources or these conditions in our experience of the body. We have some control over each of these um, conditions, but we also can't control them completely. And so it's best to not get too caught up in trying to create uh, or trying to manipulate conditions to experience a certain body uh, condition. When I was in Burma initially, uh, prior to going there, I'd been vegetarian for some years, 10 or 12 years. And I went to Burma and I sat down at the table to eat and there was about six different kinds of meat swimming in oil and white rice and then fruit. And you could take your pick of which meat you wanted to eat. And so I just said, well, if I'm here, I guess I'm going to eat meat. And so I ate meat. And of course it was pretty uncomfortable in the body for a couple of weeks. But then even it lasted for a few months where Every unpleasant condition I experienced in the body, I blamed on the food I'd just eaten the last meal. And I must confess, I have this notebook. Uh, when, while, I was in, while I was in Burma, I kept a notebook of my experience, every sitting and every walking for the whole time I was there. And I also, for several months, kept track of everything I ate. <laughs> and how I felt afterwards, thinking that somehow I was going to figure out what was causing me all this unpleasantness in the body. Scientific materialism at work, not liberation of mind. 
And it wasn't until I realized that I was asking the wrong question that I finally got on to more skillful practice. What I had been asking myself is, why am I experiencing this? Oh, I ate too much pineapple. I ate too much pork. Okay, I'll cut out a little bit of that for the next meal. I kept asking why. At some point, I turned around and I began asking what. What is the nature of this discomfort? Oh, it's hardness. It's pressure. It's tingling. It's sweating. It's hot. It's whatever. Then, practice took off. When I gave up trying to figure out so that I could manipulate conditions for pleasantness. And often, it's our fear of the unpleasant experience in the body that manipulates our mind. We should understand that it's the mind that is caught in grasping or aversion. It's not the body. The body isn't wholesome or unwholesome. The body serves as an object for the mind. And when this object, whatever physical experience we're having, goes unnoted, we will fall into clinging or aversion or confusion. And the way it happens is this. In every moment, of experience, a sense object comes in contact with a sense door, giving rise to sense consciousness. In every moment, there's a sense consciousness. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking of some kind. Immediately after that initial contact, sense object, sense door, sense consciousness, the mind begins to reflect on what has happened. And the first layer of reflection is the mind merely knows, oh, something just happened. The second reflection in the mind is the mind putting together the bits and pieces of information that comes in so rapidly, synthesizing the, the uh, sensory contact. Fourthly, or the third reflection in the mind, is where we can begin to conceptualize what it is we've experienced, where we can grasp the name of, or the class of, or the idea of that experience. Fourthly, we can give it a name. Oh no, first, excuse me. The third reflection, we grasp the idea. Subsequent to that, we grasp the name of the experience after which we can be either cling to or be averse to it. So, for example, when a sound wave strikes the eardrum, giving rise to hearing, the mind reflects and knows, okay, something has happened at the ear. Then it recognizes that there was a sound. Subsequent to that, it recognizes, oh, I am hearing a sound, it was a door slamming. Then we react with aversion. 
And you may have noticed the amount of doors closing loudly around here. And you may have noticed your aversion to it. Which came first? Did you notice your aversion and then say, oh yeah, there was a door slamming? Or did you notice the door slamming and the subsequent aversion? Initially in practice, we're going to notice our aversion first. Because our mind is not too quick. And it's our aversion or our attachment, our clinging, that we notice. And only through reflection are we going to recall back what the source of that aversion was. This process runs automatically in the mind. Hearing, conceptualizing, naming, reacting, developing aversion or or attachment. It happens and it happens quickly. And the mind, as it develops in mindfulness, can begin to catch our reactions before they get too out of control. And with even greater precision and care and quickness in our mind, we can begin to catch the processing processing of mind prior to reaction. Hearing before the aversion. But it takes a quick mind. It takes being present for the sound as and when it happens and recognizing it as hearing. And if we don't recognize it as hearing, we won't recognize it until it's aversion. When we have the continuity of mindfulness, when we have developed the mind to be with experience as and when they arise, then we can be with pain and pleasure as they arise in the body prior to reaction, prior to identification with it as my body, my knee. And it's only at that level of clarity of seeing, of continuity of seeing, that we are disidentified from the body. And so it's really helpful to understand the Buddha's teachings, what the Buddha was pointing at, so that we can practice confidently in acknowledging our experience of the body as it is. So that we don't need to get caught up in the endless uh, speculation and reflections about our bodies. Because they cannot lead to a disidentification with the body as who I am. When we can see the momentary arising and flexing, the passing away of material phenomena as it is, there can be no concept of I am the body. The Buddha said, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, pain, distress, sadness, for the realization of the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware and mindful of the arising 
in vanishing phenomena of the body. Or, as one rock group has said, once in a while you get shown the light in the strangest of places, if you look at it right. So maybe we should look at it right for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.